Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by teams at Capacity and Data Economy. This week marks one year since we started this weekly podcast and here we are more than 40 episodes later still talking. Um, So happy anniversary and birthday to the Digital Digest. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray, Senior Reporter Natalie Bannerman, and our special birthday guest, Carl Roberts, partner at Hadara Consulting and lead judge at the 2021 Global Carrier Awards. Carl, a huge welcome back to the Digital Digest. Well, thank you, Melanie, and uh, happy birthday, Digital Digest. I can't imagine it's 12 months already, but... uh... Anyway, congratulations. It's been uh, it's been one of those great lifelines through uh, through COVID times. So the team's done a great job, I must say. Thank you, Carl. Well, time flies when there's a pandemic gripping the world, Um, but we're going to come back to you later. So over the course of this episode, we are going to be talking about the biggest stories from the last week, um, which start with a few major tech breakthroughs. Um, we have heard that Hughes Network Systems has released a hybrid dual transport terminal for its European customers, um, and that routes IP traffic via terrestrial or mobile satellite networks. Meanwhile, in Brazil, Open Roaming has arrived in LATAM's busiest airport. It's the world's first open roaming network over Wi-Fi 6, um, and huge congratulations to the Wireless Broadband Alliance, Boingo, Broadcom, Cisco, and Samsung for their work on that one. Um, A major fiber project in Alaska by GCI is promising to bring the state up to speed with 10 gig internet within five years. And Infinera has said that the equipment industry has a 1 billion US dollar opportunity to replace Huawei's optical equipment between now and 2025. Um, But we're going to be talking about Open RAN later, so more on network tech soon. Um, In other news, O2 is radically overhauling its data centers as part of its ongoing sustainability drive after it saw an 89% increase in total traffic since last year. And Dan Under, the Australian regulator, ACMA has fined Like Mobile for, and I quote, public safety failures. More about that story online. And in Ireland, it's Facebook that's in hot water this week after the country's high court passed a judgment that could prevent the social network from transferring EU citizens' data to the US. Um, and that could come in before the summer. But on that note, it's over to Natalie for the detailed telecoms roundup and a major story from the UK to kick things off today. Yeah, thanks, Melanie. So starting off in the UK, as you mentioned, the Competition and Markets Authority has actually given final approval of the joint venture between Liberty Global and Telefonica to merge Virgin Media and O2. The news actually follows the provisional approval that was granted by the CMA um, in April of this year. Uh, At the time, the regulator actually raised concerns over possible price rises or reductions in the quality of wholesale services following the transaction. Uh, Following assessment by an independent uh, CMA, panel uh, members it was um, concluded that the deal is unlikely to lead to any reduction in competition due to the fact that uh, firstly Uh, The cost of uh, lease lines are only a small part of a rival mobile company's overall costs. So it's unlikely that Virgin would be able to raise lease line costs in a way that would lead to higher charges for consumers. Secondly, they said that there are other players in the market uh, offering the same lease line services, including BT OpenReach, which has a much greater geographical reach than Virgin. And lastly, um, with the lease line services, there are a number of other companies that provide mobile networks for telecom firms to use. So O2 would need to keep their services competitive um, in order to compete. Um, Overall, it's great news and the transaction is now expected to close by the 1st of June 2021. But anybody looking for further details for that can revert to our uh, website. Now, heading off to the world of subsea, Reliance Geo Infocom has announced plans to build two new subsea cables in India to support the exponential growth of data across the region. The first, called India Asia Express, um, connects Mumbai, Chennai, um, eastbound to Thailand, Malaysia and Singapore, while the second, called India Europe Express, connects India westbound to Italy, landing in Savona and additional landings in the Middle East and North. Africa. Both systems will seamlessly interconnect with uh, top internet exchange points and content hubs uh, for extensions of service globally. And both high capacity and high speed systems will provide more than 200 terabits per second of capacity, spanning over 16,000 kilometers in total. It will also use open system technology and the latest wavelength switched road ADM branching units um, to ensure that the rapid upgrade and flexibility to add or remove wavelengths across both networks are possible. 
Once completed, both systems will enhance the ability for consumer and enterprise users uh, to access content and cloud services on the international stage. Um, IAX is expected to be ready for service by mid-2023, while IEX will be ready for service in early 2024. Now, um, we also have another story from capacity uh, from the capacity Middle East event uh, that actually took place this week, actually on e-gaming. Um, it was actually uh, the panel session um, and it was uh, some interesting takeaways. Um, so Youssef um, Bazar, the founder and vice chairman of Unreal Bahrain and the Bahrain Internet Society, actually said that by 2022, it's expected that spending um, or actually the size of the gaming sector in the Middle East will reach about six billion dollars um, and that there is a young generation that actually you know grew up with um, games and they always look for better services to enjoy they, those games uh, which conversely is obviously putting a strain on the telecom sector um, in his words games like Fortnite actually average around 40 to 100 megabytes of data per hour um, so it's something that the next generation is always going to look for um, in terms of uh, their service providers and it's something uh, that the telecom sector in the region is trying to fill in terms of the gaps um, uh, in, in delivery of those services. Uh, as far as challenges in the space, uh, Malik Hamoud, who is the Chief Investment and Digital Officer at Zane Group, actually said that uh, it requires a, a collaborative approach from both the private and public sector in terms of the, the development of the infrastructure required to deliver those services. Uh, one of the particular challenges he also highlighted was latency, which obviously we know is crucial for you know, real-time games. Um, but in the Middle East in particular, he pointed out that most of the servers of the big gaming companies are actually not based in the region, but there is work currently underway with those companies to have their services hosted in the Middle East, hopefully tackling some of those latency issues. Uh, looking ahead and probably rather unsurprisingly, the consensus was that 5G will actually resolve many of those latency-based issues as well um, and obviously vastly improve the gaming experience for its user because as we know, uh, with 5G as well as edge, um, edge computing edge computing they are both you know inherently uh, faster and higher performance so um, hung, uh, data hungry um, applications like gaming are perfect for that um, but it was really an interesting panel so hopefully uh, anybody wanting to read up more about it take a look on the website now, lastly, staying in the region, Arc Solutions has entered into an agreement with BSO to interconnect their respective networks in the Middle East and globally. Through the partnership, Arc is able to deliver networking solutions across BSO's uh, global ecosystem, while BSO benefits from the ability to uh, expand its presence in the Middle East with Arc's local knowledge and experience. The collaboration supports the shared common goal of both companies to make the ordering, provisioning and management of global connectivity as smooth as possible for its customers. Um, this agreement is actually is the first phase of integrating ARC and BSO's network footprints and delivering um, on-demand networking via a unified platform. Specifically, ARC and BSO customers can connect on-demand to and from any point over uh, the company's combined footprint. So uh, great news for their respective customers and great news for the region altogether. But that's it from me. Back to you, Melanie. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Natalie. Um, there's a lot to unpick in that roundup today. What a busy week it's been. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that the Virgin um, O2 story is is probably the biggest. Um, I'll be very keen to see what kind of happens with that, with that merger over time. I'm, I, I'm sure we're going to hear some more news in the coming weeks about what the, their specific plans are. Mm, and yeah. have they have they chosen a name yet, Natalie? Or have they announced a name? I'm sure they they've chosen haven't one. chosen. No, they haven't chosen a name yet. Um, yeah, I think they've just confirmed that they confirmed the CEO, and I'm not going to guess her name because I can't remember. But I do remember seeing it on the release this morning. But no name as of yet. Um, I'd be curious to know whether or not. Um, I assume it's going to be a brand new entity, but you never quite know because it is supposedly a 50-50 joint venture. So, yeah, I'd imagine it to be a new entity. So, and there's already an O2 in Germany, which Telefonica is holding on to. And uh, there's Virgin Media in Ireland, which Liberty Global is holding on to. So I guess it will be a brand new name. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's very soon. It's only, what, 10 days away. So if it's the 1st of June, we're, yeah. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised at how quick everything was progressing, but I think they were quite literally just sitting, um, waiting for the, that last approval to come through. So, yeah, it has been in the works for a while, technically. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, do we think that if Brexit hadn't have happened, the European Commission would have come to the same conclusion? Because this wasn't originally a CMA case to hear. No, but they weren't competing. O2 and Virgin Media UK weren't really competing with them. They did come back before the Brexit vote or just after the Brexit vote, which was nearly five years ago. Um, they blocked a merger between O2 UK and 3 UK. Uh, yeah, um, they absolutely said no. That would they did. The Commission doesn't like reducing four competitors to three. Um, it's done it in a few places and then decided enough is enough. So, mm. so probably, probably not, or they would have certainly faced a lot more hurdles if past experience is anything to go by. Yeah, you're right. Mm. Yeah, in the context of the Hutchison merger that they blocked last year, because, um, I mean, Hutchison obviously were very... Um, very disgruntled um, by that decision. Um, but with that in mind, and then what the CMA has actually said today about its reasoning on this decision, um, it kind of feels as though there was never really an issue in the first place, because it all depended on whether or not basically O2 and Virgin could be trusted to continue to provide competitive wholesale services, even though they'd have joined forces. And surely no company is going to, you know, merge with another company and think, oh, well, now we can take our feet off the pedal. <laughs> it's, it's just a bizarre reasoning. Um, but anyway, that was my two kind of thought on that one. Um, Natalie, thank you so much for that roundup. Um, and Alan, coming to you next. Um, now, there's been some big news as well this week from AT&T, and this is a divestment rather than an acquisition. So tell us what's happening. Yeah, it's well, I called it AT&T's disaster movie in my headline. So if you give me a space, a few minutes, which one? Um, I was wondering, was it the first Alien movie, which is an amazing 42 years old next week? Uh, and which character is Ripley and which is mother of the shipboard computer? And when will the alien burst out from the deep inside the spaceship? Or maybe it's Earthquake, uh, which is 1974, even older than Alien, with Charlton Heston rush, rushing through a collapsing Los Angeles, which is perhaps appropriate. Um, Vulture.com, which is, assesses movies, called it a turgid soap opera. But maybe it's Airplane, which was 1980. I'm showing my age again. That spoof of a disaster movie. And Vulture.com said the disaster movie has always functioned as its own self-parody. And I think maybe the telecoms giants, uh, many of the telecoms giants have been doing their own self-parody in recent years. So AT&T is following BT, which only a few weeks ago, their CEO said they're trying to offload BT Sports, uh, or at least a big share of it. Uh, Verizon a few weeks ago, whose CEO Hans Bassberg was uh, formerly of Ericsson, he's already offloaded a chunk of AOL and Yahoo. And everybody wondered at the time, why was Verizon buying AOL and Yahoo? But there we are. Um, they spent 10 billion on it several years ago. Um, these businesses came with Huffington Post and Tumblr and Flickr and so on, and probably a few others that no one's discovered yet. And everyone just said, why? So these three announcements with the uh, the AT&T one, which is basically offloading its um, content division, into a joint venture with Discovery. It's merging with Discovery into a new company. Um, uh, what's been going on? It's a bit like that scene in, uh, sorry, another movie, Tulip Fever, where the bottom drops out of the market for tulip bulbs in Amsterdam, and they all try and unload their stock in double quick time. So this is what AT&T is doing. Uh, it means that AT&T shareholders will get 71% of the new company, which is still doesn't have a name, a bit like O2 and uh, Virgin Media UK, um, uh, while Discovery shareholders will get the other 29%. Um, There's going to be a year of disruption. It's going to take it a year to get through the regulators. Um, the whole point of it was that they're trying to strengthen the content business against fast-moving Netflix. Move fast and break things? Well, give me a year to get it through the regulators. That's not moving fast and breaking things. Um, who's happy? Uh, the activist shareholder, Elliott Management, which built a stake in the telco in 2019. It hated the DirecTV acquisition in 2014, which it said had damaging results. That's already been offloaded. And the huge purchase of Time Warner, which became Warner Media, and that's the one that's being merged with Discovery. So the new CEO of AT&T, John Stankey, has listened to Elliot and Elliot patted him on the back virtually and they called uh, Stankey's decision to sell Warner Media another impressive step in the company's recent evolution. And it's we get this in all sorts of industry. We get it in phases. Everybody consolidates. You get a diverse company where 
you know, you're making everything from cornflakes to cigarettes. And then everyone says, well, no, I've got a cornflake specialist here and a cig cigarette specialist there. Let's move them back into separate companies. And it's a bit like that with the the content in the telecoms industry. Just because it's delivered by optical fibre doesn't mean that the optical fibre owners should own the content. Um, so what will the Discovery-led team do? They're the people who've been doing cooking science, travel and nature tra channels. But now they're going to have CNN and HBO and the original Warner Brothers movie house against, and they're going to be competing against Netflix and Disney and Amazon Prime. I'm going to use that horrible journalistic cop out. Time will tell, Melanie. I don't know. Time will tell. Yes, that is indeed true. Uh, but you raised some good points there as well as making some excellent analogies. Um, interesting, though, that Elliot got their way on the activist shareholder front. Um, Even though Elliot has sold point. their shares. So, you know, it's, yeah. they're, they're just, I think, showing that they are powerful. They've been into Telecom Italia in the past few years. They've been into another other companies. And I think they're just showing that if Elliot says something, the shareholders and the board of directors will listen. And they got their way with AT&T. I mean, AT&T might have been wrong in the first place, but we don't know now. Uh, they got their way with AT&T. And next time Elliot decided to move into a different company, you can be sure the board of directors and the shareholders will take notice. Yes. Um... We will we'll see if, if that one pans out. Um, thank you so much, Alan. Um, I'm returning to Natalie now for the data centre roundup. Um, Natalie, tell us what has been happening in the world of data centres. Thanks, Mel. Yeah, so starting off with Microsoft, the company actually received approval to build a new data center campus near Chicago. Um, the first two data center buildings uh, total close to 400,000 square feet on a 53-acre site. Um, the company won approval for the first of those buildings from the Hoffman Estates Village Board after acquiring the land in 2020. Uh, the planning board acknowledged that Microsoft still hasn't um, secured a full power supply to cover the needs of the campus, um, but has allowed the firm to proceed with the construction on the first building, which is expected to take around 18 months to build. The company is said to be negotiating with a local utility, ComEd, to uh, deliver the power the site um, needs. Um, at present, it falls about 40% short of what is needed uh, just for the first building. Uh, kind of concerning, but um, each of the two buildings are expected to employ about 20 permanent staff with almost 300 construction jobs created during the whole project at, at a cost of around 450 to 500 million. So a massive project uh, creating um, much needed economy in the local area. In other news, uh, DCI data centers is to build a 54 million data center, uh, sorry, 54 million dollar data center in Adelaide, uh, South Australia, adding to its, its existing portfolio in the country. Um, DCI says the new facility will be the state's most energy efficient, secure data center in response to the growing needs of local businesses and government. The tier three slash four ready cloud edge facility will also meet a defense grade security requirements with investments in additional land as well as a site power and other in infrastructure upgrades, um, which could be used to support further expansion at the location in the future. Uh, construction is due to begin over the coming weeks and the project is due to be completed by mid 2022. Uh, in addition, earlier this week, Digital Colony um, announced plans to acquire Landmark Dividend, the real estate and infrastructure acquisition and development company, for $972 million. The deal includes a number of digital and data center assets. Um, and over the last year, uh, Landmark Dividend actually acquired close to 20 data centers. Um, so in a statement, C Stephen Soddenstein, the uh, senior managing director at Digital Colony, said uh, the position uh, is our first strategic step to secure a stronger future for Landmark Dividend and its various affiliated entities. We look forward to working with the team to enhance our shared mission of acquiring and managing critical digital infrastructure assets that deliver quick, reliable and responsive service for customers. Uh, congratulations, therefore, to all involved, and we look forward to seeing how the business evolves under the digital colony umbrella.
Now, lastly, Schneider Electric is launching its EcoStructure Micro Data Center R series for rugged indoor environments in Europe over the next month. Uh, the Micro Data Centers offer a quick to deploy solution to help manage uh, edge computing infrastructure within what it calls uh, challenging industrial and manufacturing environments. Uh, according to the company, the offerings are configurable, prepackaged, and enclosed rack systems that include power, cooling, security, and management and they can save up to 40% in field engineering costs, get systems to market 20% faster and reduce maintenance costs by 7%. Um, as part of the launch, six new models will be available in 16U, 24U and 42U sizes to deliver flexible uh, flexibility and scalability. Uh, so great news for um, those that use or require, you know, industry 4.0 technologies and therefore require this infrastructure as a result. Um, but that's it from me. Back to you, Menly. Thanks, Natalie. Um, yeah, we were actually quite surprised to hear that news about um, Digital Colony um, this week. 972 million is a lot of money. Um, yeah, big news in the industry, but thanks so much, Natalie. That was excellent. Um, a quick reminder that later in this episode, we're speaking to Carl Roberts. Um, but before we go to Carl, we're going to return to Alan um, because there have been two major developments this week that not only tie in with some recurring themes for us here at Digital Digest, but also set the scene for what's going to be happening in networks over the coming years. Um, so on that note, Alan, over to you. Thanks, Melanie. Yes, it's uh, this week another step forward in the move towards Open RAN, that's Open Radio Access Networks. Uh, for the mobile industry, which some see as the way of liberating the mobile industry from the big three vendors, that's Ericsson, Nokia and Huawei. And of course, remember that Huawei is excluded from much of the world for what uh, the Americans claim are security reasons. And of course, Huawei denies. The Kuten Mobile in Japan uh, is already operating what it believes is the first 5G cloud-based open RAN system in the world. That's in Japan. It launched it uh, not too long ago. And the, it's now working with its uh, vendor, NEC, uh, to spread their expertise globally. Uh, in other words, Bakuten and NEC want to advise other mobile operators around the world that this is the way to go. This is the future. Uh, and of course, NEC used to be a big mobile equipment supplier back in the early days of mobile, and it wants to get back into the business. It's already got a, a center of expertise in the UK, which it set up in 2020, and it wants to really spread its influence. So Tari Kameen, the CTO of Vakuten Mobile, uh, said this week that this company had successfully designed, launched, and now operates a fully virtualized mobile network. Uh, he said this is a unique network architecture built on open RAN standards, and it continues to attract significant interest from operators, enterprises, and governments around the world. Um, I mean, is used to be the CTO of uh, Reliance Geo in India, and you will Digital Digest listeners will remember Reliance as the one that really ripped through the Indian mobile industry where there used to be 9, 10, 11, however you counted, mobile operators. And under Geo's influence, they shrank to basically three, four, if you add the state-owned one. Um, a lot just merged, a lot of money was lost. They came in with a completely new idea and uh, Tariq Amin was the brains behind it. Um, so Rakuten and NEC have signed a memorandum of understanding to promote the technology and it's uh, really we'll see how it uh, is picked up by eric's uh, by the uh, vendors um it seems to be the theme of the industry this year that open ran is uh people are taking it on uh ericsson and nokia are both sort of looking and wondering whether they're going to lose market share and and last week we talked about the big five mobile operators in Europe. That's Orange, Vodafone, Deutsche Telekom, Telefonica and Telecom Italia, uh, all trying to get open RAN networks. They're collaborating uh, in the research and development. They're wanting to get them in operation either later this year or early next year. So open RAN is the theme of the industry at the moment. So um, We'll see what happens at the virtual Mobile World Congress or the real Mobile World Congress that we mentioned uh, we will be talking about with Carl later on um, because, you know, this is the time when events are starting to open up again. And I think Open RAN will be a theme in Barcelona uh, for Mobile World Congress. And now 
News also, another sector for the mobile industry, a uh, developing market for private mobile networks. That's for factories and mines and so on. Uh, according to some research published this week by the Global Mobile Suppliers Association, which calls itself the GSA, so as to not uh, confuse us with the GSMA. Um, there are 311 private mobile networks in the world using 4G or 5G, and they're in 40 countries, says the GSA. Um, manufacturing is the biggest sector. 67 of those 311 are manufacturing, in other words, factories, and then mining and then ports. Uh, and there's a big diversity of equipment vendors in the business, uh, 38, which is really quite an extraordinarily large number. Um, and so why go private? Well, sometimes networks are literally down a mine, and I've come across ones in gold mines in South America, uh, mines for stone in China, all using very advanced uh, 4G at the moment, but upgrading to 5G before too long. Um, mobile networks, um, and also you need them in factories. Why do you need them? Because you need really low latency controls. If you've got a forklift truck that's about to dump a pallet of, of castings some, or something or stone, um, you really need it to be reacting within a microsecond or at least a millisecond. Otherwise, you put it in the wrong place. Um, you don't want the signal to drop out as well. So you need to control of the network within that closed environment, whatever it might be. Apparently, the car industry is an early leader, said the GSA. O automotive companies have already announced, uh, sorry, already account for 27% of the manufacturing companies that are, it's identified as moving into the market. So it's, I think it's going to be a really testing environment. Uh, that's the whole point of it. It's a testing environment you can control, uh, but it's a, a real growth area for the big markets. And maybe it's also going to be where certainly companies like Nokia and Huawei have specialized as well. And it may be that if the mobile industry, and I'm speculating here and I don't have any evidence, if the, the big mobile operators are moving towards open RAN, uh, people like Nokia and Huawei are focusing on private networks as a, as a good area to expand into. Melanie. Thanks, Alan. You make some really, really good points there. Um, and mining as well. It's not just the, like, obviously, there's a lot of mining and we've covered a lot of um, mining stories recently. Um, but also Agtech as well is going to be huge for these private networks. And the CEO of NASFAS, which is um, apparently the world's largest tech investor, um, said back in January that he thinks that this is going to be one of the biggest areas for private networks moving forwards. And really, when you think about it, there are so many industrial applications all of these types of solutions. Um, yeah, it really is going to change how um, how telecoms works in future as well as the wider world. Yeah, I had a fascinating con conversation a few years ago at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona with a, a techie guy from John Deere, which is the, they make the big agricultural machines and construction machines. And they're working, and, and usually, of course, if it's a, as you say, it's, if it's a farm, it's usually got very bad mobile coverage. So you need mm -hmm. your own mobile network there. But they're talking about, applying fertilizer to little bits, you know, a few square centimeters of land and also plowing and then harvesting to right to the edge of the fields instead of just going straight and missing a bit. So it should improve agricultural productivity um, and hopefully improve food production and the economy of food production. Hopefully, yes. Fingers crossed. Um, thank you so much, Alan. Next, we're speaking with Carl Roberts, partner at Hadara Consulting and lead judge at the 2021 Global Carrier Awards. Carl, welcome and thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Melanie. A real pleasure to be uh, back here on the, um, on the airwaves with you. Fantastic. It's great to have you here. Um, so let's talk first today about the Global Carrier Awards because nominations have opened now, which means that those who wish to compete in any of the 30 plus categories now have until the 22nd of July to submit their nominations. Um, and while those nominations are flooding in, Carl, you're working tirelessly behind the scenes. So tell us what's in store for 2021. Well, look, 2021 uh, will have 36 categories. So it's just a, a couple shy of what we had last year. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what's going to come in this year. Last year uh, was a very, very good batch. Uh, there was a huge amount of innovation that was coming in, uh, uh, especially from 
let's say smaller uh, smaller carriers, smaller entities, uh, software companies. If my memory serves me right, uh, it was a bumper year last year for our friends at Sparkle, but also from Amdocs. And certainly what I've seen in you know the 12 months since is that the rate of innovation has accelerated hugely. And this, of course, has been driven by everybody going digital very quickly, uh, the increasing role of software in our industry. And also, people talk a lot about new normal, and that's the last time I'm going to say it because it is the normal right now. Uh, the rate of change is de facto now. Everything has to be done quickly. And I think uh, certainly from what I've seen from some of the entries uh, with the Data Cloud Awards, uh, which I was a judge on recently, there's a lot of really smart stuff going on in the industry. Smaller companies doing very innovative things and bringing different partners together uh, to create solutions for uh, for enterprises uh, and um, and consumers. So I, I think uh, I'm looking forward to a bumper batch this year. And of course, this year uh, we should be, let's say, cautiously optimistic about uh, doing this in person, uh, as we've had uh, Capacity Middle East the first in-person event which went very well and I'm sure we'll be talking about that in a moment. Um, I'm looking forward to Capacity Europe for the Global Carrier Awards being truly a, uh, an, a a great event again where we can all catch up with everybody uh, and have a proper show and uh, discover who's put on weight since they last wore their tux, all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Well, yes, I mean, Carl, as you mentioned, it is um, actually planned to be a physical event this year. So that is scheduled to be taking place in London in October. Um, and hopefully there will be many more physical events before October. Um, Alan has some news today um, from Mobile World Congress, which we'll come to in a moment. Um, but on this point, again, Capacity Middle East, as you mentioned, now you're actually based in Dubai and you were there live at the event this week. Um, so we had a live networking element as well as the stream content. And granted, Dubai has had a very different experience of COVID-19 to compared to the UK, for example. Um, tell us what it was like to actually network in person and meet people and have that, you know, live business environment. Well, look, it was not just for me, but for everybody involved. It was fabulous to actually see everybody again and to, to, to go to an event and uh, catch up with everybody. It was, uh, I, I think relief is one word. Uh, everybody was really happy about it, I have to say. And, uh, We've said throughout the pandemic, one of the things you can't replace are those, let's say, side conversations. Um, those are sides which may be five, ten minutes that actually turn into real business. There was lots of that going on at uh, Capacity Middle East. Uh, I know for, for myself, by the end of the first morning, uh, I'd had uh, you know, th three opportunities to pursue. Um, I was speaking to uh, somebody in the local market here who said they had a full morning and then in the afternoon they went back to the office and told their boss that uh, they'd come across five opportunities they would never have had had they not come to the show. And uh, I also witnessed because I was you know, just talking with somebody and they bumped into an old friend and what started off was a bit of uh, social chit chat turned into uh, a joint initiative uh, where plans to fly places to uh, to assist in putting together business opportunities. And, you know, the people who actually had to travel to come to the event had to put in some fairly convincing business cases to get there. So they were very motivated. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, let's say, a, a social event per se, uh, because th th there weren't any of the social gatherings, of course, you normally associate with uh, with these events. So it was very business driven, but uh, everybody was absolutely delighted and it felt like we were coming uh, out, of, out of the tunnel and into the light again. And uh, hopefully now we can get all the rest of the events rolling for the rest of the year because to a person, you know, everybody just saying it's so, so good to be able to talk to people, uh, to catch up with people and to have those those conversations you just never have on a Zoom. Indeed, yeah. Um, and 
myself, Alan and Natalie, who have been working from home for the last year. So we fully understand how exciting it must be to actually get out there and meet people face to face. But this is all great news and it's so promising as well, because obviously this International Telecoms Week coming up at the end of August. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, it's, it is the start of you know, things kind of getting back to normal. Um, but on the logistics, let's say, of running a physical event at this time, I mean, as a company, we've had to implement some really robust processes, let's say. Um, but from the delegate perspective, what's it actually like to be there? What's the experience of being at a live event? Well, look, it's fairly straightforward to the extent that, you know, we're all grown-ups in this industry and uh, people understand that whilst things are getting better in many places around the world uh, and until things are fixed everywhere, there's, there's still some element of risk. So everybody acted very responsibly. Uh, the, the way it was organized was very good. So streams of traffic, in other words, people going into the to the main hall and going out of the main hall weren't side by side. There, there was kind of traffic, uh, traffic control of people coming in and coming out. Uh, meeting rooms uh, had limited capacity, so you know, two meters apart. Uh, social distancing. Now, obviously, from time to time, when people were having a coffee or what have you, the, the masks would come down. But in general, people were very respectful of the uh, the measures in place. Uh, there were sanitizers sanitizers all over the place. Um, the the food, you know, the catering, uh, it was served by people, so you didn't have everybody. Uh, sticking their f- fingers into the food uh, and uh, uh, and snacks and so on and so forth were were pre-packed uh, individually. So, look, uh, you know, kudos to the capacity team because uh, it takes a lot of attention to detail. And of course, uh, in Dubai, you really have to respect these because they will shut things down in an instant. So, I think that uh, it was very well prepared. Uh, the delegates acted very responsibly, and uh, and it, w- it wasn't really a hardship. You know, we're, we're all so used to having to put up with the um, the COVID-associated measures that it's a small price to pay to follow a few rules, wear, wear a mask, to have the possibility to meet with everybody. So. Um, uh, very straightforward. I'm sure the logistics behind it were an absolute nightmare for you because it takes a lot of organizing, but it did work very well from my perspective. Fantastic. Um, well, yeah, I mean, huge congratulations to our colleagues um, who organized the event and also a few of them did travel to, um, to the United Arab Emirates and we'll have to spend the next couple of weeks in a quarantine hotel. Um, but that's, you raised the point. probably there. a lot less fun, Melanie. <laughs> coming back, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier when you, you just get your temperature taken and you're allowed in as opposed to uh, the flip side of that when you go back to the UK having to spend 10 days or whatever it is locked up somewhere. So uh, yeah, acts of heroism there, I have to say. Indeed, yeah. Um, but I like what you said there about um, how the delegates, you know, all really took personal responsibility for the event being a success as well. Um, and obviously the return of investment of them attending, I mean, like you said, people were very keen to do business. You came out with plenty of new leads, others that you've spoken to had similar experiences. So it's really, um, yeah, it's really um, heartening to see that things are starting to um, to go back to normal. But I just want to open up to you, Alan and Natalie now, because as I mentioned earlier, Alan has been covering the news from Mobile World Congress this morning. Um, and Natalie also um, has plenty to ask you. Um, so opening up to you guys now. Yeah, the, this is interesting because Mobile World Congress, which is the uh, mobile industry's giant event, uh, was cancelled last year, the Barcelona event. Mm-hmm. And um, the year before 2019, they had 109,000 people in Barcelona. It's uh, just enormous um and last year it was they sort of held on until the last moment but ericsson and various other companies just gradually pulled out because of the risk um this was late february and they finally cancelled this year they've moved it to uh the summer uh the the northern hemisphere summer um june july so and they said this morning and this is thursday that they're hoping for well maybe 30 or 40 or 50,000 they're very vague they're almost they really can't estimate how many people are coming only best estimates said uh, Mats Granard who's the director general of the GSMA um i personally would be surprised if they get as many as that as many as even 30,000 i suspect it'd be the bottom end of that um 
and they're consolidating from two sites into one. They, uh, the, anybody who was there up till about seven or eight years ago will remember the old site, which they've used for startups for the last few years. Um, but the big site in uh, Fira Granvia, they're all going to move there. Um, and maybe they'll be rattling around because it's a very big site. Um, next year, they're aiming to go back to uh, February. Um, Mm-hmm. which is interesting sometimes it's nice and warm sometimes it's cold um mm-hmm. but i think they're going to they're aiming to go back to the regular schedule and obviously you know as at capacity middle east in dubai this week they're going to be doing uh testing um whether they'll need vaccination certificates or something like that who knows but there'll be lots of sanitizers and all that sort of thing yeah. and in fact this today's press conference which is in Barcelona so I didn't attend it because I'm in London but the people who were there attended in person they had Covid tests on the way in so now mm-hmm. that's if they do that in uh, at the live event in June July that's going to slow down things a lot because it's always a long time to it's always very high security uh, to get in and if you're going to have to do a test as well that's going to slow things down um, and as uh, John Hoffman who's the the CEO of the commercial arm of the GSMA said it's been a superhuman effort and I think everyone doing events at the moment mm-hmm. really working hard uh, and I think our ITW team are experiencing this at the, this very moment they're aiming to do it just outside Washington DC at the end of August yeah. and uh, it's it's a big effort where everybody is learning to do things in a new way we used to just go up to these events and check in you know show our passports or our id or our booking forms now it's going to be much harder um, but the gsma is coming back um itw is coming back capacity europe in london is i hope by october it's all very safe and sound so let's hope so but yeah, yeah i think by that by that time alan uh, we'll, we'll probably have something akin to uh, digital health passport. There's plenty of technology out out, yeah. out there. Uh, you know, one one of the companies that I do some work with is a UK uh, company called VST Enterprises. It's been very much in the press. Uh, the problem has been everybody's kind of waiting for governments to say, well, this is uh, this, this is the approved one or that one's the approved one. And of course, they haven't done that. So everybody's been kind of sitting and waiting. But I think and getting internationally approved ones. So if I sh- if I've got a vaccination certificate on my app on my phone issued by the UK's National Health Service. I mean, would that be recognised in Washington, D.C., or would it be recognised in Dubai? I mean, it's like, you know, you almost need an organisation like IATA, which uh, I don't know how many decades ago decided to take it into its own hands to standardise the design of passports, which is why passports these days are always all the same size. They all have that digital stripe along the bottom with the numbers. In, a, in an agreed format and we have no problem going through uh, passport control in multiple well in normal times in multiple airports around the world but yeah. you need somebody like that in it's an international organization or maybe the world health organization to yeah. uh, to standardize it so it can be opened by anybody at any place and they can say yes no are you secure covid secure yeah and I, and I think this this is the time to to do that and and frankly I think our industry can probably help that uh, because uh, right now we're living through uh, COVID times, but we don't know that there won't be, uh, hopefully not, but you know, something else of, of similar danger coming down the pike. So we, we need to be better prepared. And uh, as this all goes digital, then you know, conceptually, we could be heading to a world where we've all got digital passports and that'll show whether we've uh, got a COVID vaccination or a yellow fever vaccination, whether we've got our visas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I think that's the, the general direction now. And maybe to a certain extent, uh, uh, you know, large uh, large companies doing doing events can help pave the way for that uh, because, you know, it's a, it's a matter of survival really to uh, to get people back in. We see that uh, what's happening, for example, in the English Premier League. Uh, uh, now getting fans back into the stadiums, uh, or stadia rather, uh, 
you know, there are, I know some of those uh, are using um, digital health passports. So, and, and here in Dubai, uh, literally, I, I read in the papers today, is that um, going into clubs, uh, places of mass gatherings, they're going to ask people to show their uh, local health application that shows they're vaccinated to before allowing people to go in. So we, we're kind of on the way to, the, to that to that scenario being implemented broadly. But as you say, Alan, what it needs is for there to be some kind of global standard to which everybody adheres to. And then you don't have to, if you're going to five countries, you don't need five different apps to uh, get a tick in the box. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. We, we, it needs to be just like a passport, uh, you know, the, exactly. the, the international standard without yeah. revealing all sorts of sensitive information, whether, you know, people's other health issues that have got nothing to do with whether you can travel or not. Just saying it's OK. This person has been vaccinated against COVID. Yes yeah. or no. Um, yeah. Or being tested against. Yeah. About but there's, there's technology out there that, that is actually very clever that allows um, depending on um, authorizations, you can kind of scan the same code. Mm. And depending if you're uh, uh, somebody in an airport or a doctor or a policeman, you see different things, only what you're allowed to see fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. And all, all GDPR compliant, of course. So when we get to that point, then we'll all be better off. And actually, it will help um, it will help governments better manage these kind of situations going forward. Exactly. And we'll have local uses as well. I mean, if people yeah. want to go into big stores or football matches, as you said, or somewhere else, then showing this at the door or the gate will uh, will help. Um, not revealing personal information, just a yes or a no, a yeah. green light or a red light or something like that. A green ticky mark that says it's okay to let Alan in today. Yes, exactly. I won't be going into any football matches, but there we are. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the digital industry, I think, has access to you know, a lot of resources, not just for the passport sort of thing, but also to find out whether there are new pandemics coming along, because there will be some. And Google, I remember a few years ago saying that they had inclination they had early indications whether there was flu coming in different parts of the world because people start googling flu symptoms and stuff like that and i think if the industry worked together they would start to show you know whether there was something happening in a certain part of the world and track it uh, a Which, little advanced track and trace yeah well the, the technology is absolutely there and people could probably do this today if they set their minds to it but again, it's how the information gets, first of all, validated, because that's obviously a big concern uh, when you see how social media can be easily manipulated these days. Uh, social yeah, media yeah. being responsible, for, certainly in part, for certain election results. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I think, you know, provided one can validate the data, it's then a question of how that gets shared uh, intelligently across entities so that you create a kind of early warning system, which means that you can A, kind of close places down fairly quickly and uh, B, uh, get get help and assistance to, to those areas that may be impacted by an outbreak of goodness knows what. Because uh, I think I was reading a couple of months ago, one part of China, they actually had bubonic plague which is fairly well contained but we certainly wouldn't want that to start spreading around the world either no. so no. yeah so i think that um yeah i think our industry um or, the, or rather the broader ict sec sector has to be at the heart of this because it's all about uh, gathering the validation and the distribution of data right in real time uh, so that uh, you know people in in the relevant areas of responsibility can act and, and do what's needed. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just COVID. There's all sorts of nasties that yeah. are around in the world. I mean, tuberculosis, for example, I suspect there are more cases of tuberculosis around the world these days than there were before antibiotics uh, came along. Um, and Ebola and all those sorts of things. Um, fortunately, smallpox is gone and polio is almost non-existent now, but uh, there are still lots of other nasties working, were lurking away in the background. 
Yeah, and we, we certainly have the technology to, uh, you know, to use for the powers of uh, uh, the positive powers as opposed to the powers of evil. So yeah. that needs to be done. But again, I think up until now, um, it's never been deemed to be a priority, even though I, I think in the top 10 list of threats each country has, past goodness knows how many years they've had pandemics on the list, but actually did nothing about it. So maybe uh, going forward, that will change. <laughs> yes. Well, yes, the UK so. government. <laughs> go on, Melanie, yeah. Well, if so, anyone needs anything new to keep themselves awake at night with, there's always antimicrobial resistance. If you want some new nightmares, do do Google that one and what it could do for the future of antibiotics, if not disease. Yeah. Um, but just um, to go to Natalie as well now, um, Natalie, do you have a question for Carl? Um, yeah, I did. Just a, a quick one to circle back on the GCAs. You know, now that the nominations are open, I'm always uh, curious to give those who are listening a bit of, a bit of advice because we always get questions, you know, from people in terms of, you know, how do they boost their chances or any tips or any takeaways or yeah. how do we um, how do we raise the standard of submission, so to speak? Any any kind of um, uh, yeah tips for anybody out there who's listening before they get started? Yeah, abs absolutely. And I'll try to keep it in to less than 30 minutes for you. Um, <laughs> uh, no, look, uh, what, what what's important? I said there's, there's a lot of really exciting things happening uh, out there in the industry. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the perspective from, you know, from the judges. What we're looking for is per category, there are a certain number of questions that need to be answered. So I'd say, please, please, please answer the question. And, and don't just send us a, a copy paste from a website because those will get marked down and, and it's fairly transparent. Uh, uh, in, in times past, I've seen entries where, uh, you know, everything in answer to the questions was actually not at all relevant to the question. So that, you know, that's definite no-no. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, saying, well, you know, further information, please check these 10 links to, <laughs> to, to other sites. That's uh, a bit of a turn. What, what we're looking for is something that's relevant to the question. Uh, and we, we can see visibly, and all the judges are very experienced people, so they can see through a cut and paste. Uh, cut and paste will not work. Um, <clears throat> what they're saying is, okay, if, if the question is, you know, why are you the best uh, global wholesale carrier, or why have you done the most? innovative thing they're looking for answers to i think they're four or five sub questions uh depending on the category you know an answer the question uh, be concise uh and if you've got a compelling story it, it will definitely come out uh the, the other thing i know there are a number of questions about um, uh, last year's innovation which was having videos go in there and look there are lots of great great videos um some we had some feedback that says, well, it's unfair because smaller companies don't have the means to do these what I call sizzle videos. And my answer to that is it doesn't need to be a sizzle video. Yes, some of the larger carriers, they've already got um, yeah, uh, media groups that do this stuff and do it very well. But at the end of the day, it's again, are you are you answering the questions uh, for that specific category? Is it relevant? And um, you know, we saw some amazing videos. Uh, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not going to quote all of them, but a few. Of them, I mean, I think Deutsche Telekom did some great sizzle videos. I think our friends at DKIX did. Um, and on the other hand, equally impactful was the video uh, that the guys from um, A1 in Austria <clears throat> sent through, which was done with their smartphone. And that was brilliant. There's three guys talking about their project in front of a whiteboard, and that was it. And, uh, you know, quite simply, there was a, another one which had the CEO of Netera talking about, uh, I think that was the OSS, BSS category, why it was so unique, and they were both winners. So really, it's about being on point. Uh, I, I think the video helps. It certainly helps the judges, because it's all about about having a focused response and uh, really saying, okay, you know, de demonstrating that uh, you're really interested in the award for that category and you're not just trying to tell us how great you are by copy pasting, you know, two gigabits of, uh, 
of stuff from the website. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to say, say that too negatively because generally people do answer the question, but we still see too much of the look. Here's our have standard stuff. We'll just load it in uh, a sentence on the front and the back to try and make it a bit relevant. Uh, the judges are experienced. They're all great people, and they see through that. So, uh, so you know, those would be the key takeaways uh, uh, from from my perspective. And it, and it's straightforward. Uh, the the portal makes it very easy to to input. Uh, it's very well done. And uh, and what it does is it it allows the judges to. Um, who are all, you know, each judge sees an entire category, so they can see like for like across a, a full category. Um, and what the, the portal does, it gives you a kind of consistency of inputs which weren't there before. So it makes it very easy to do the like for like comparison, uh, which also means that if you've got, you know, five entries or 10 entries in a particular category, the ones that will come to the top will be the ones that are focused uh, on the real essence of what the question is. So, I, you know, those are the key bits of advice um, I give. Uh, we had some fantastic uh, entries last year. I was super impressed and super proud to be part of this industry. I think I said that in, in my speech at the awards. There's some amazing uh, stuff going on. And uh, I think what we'll see this year is that we'll find more and more uh, entries from, uh, let's say, small companies that are doing really smart things uh, that actually complement some of the some of the large players so really looking forward to seeing uh, what the uh, what the 2021 vintage will give us uh, it's been a busy year uh, lots going on um, in subsea uh, you know there's a lot going on last year that continues this year uh, in the innovation area I expect to see a lot of uh, really cool things coming out and um, obviously as 2021 seems to be the year of the edge, uh, so edge enablement uh, and how people are considering kind of refashioning their networks to serve that. I think will be it would be interesting to see what comes out in in those areas. And obviously we've got our special uh, special recognition uh, uh, category, uh, which includes you know COVID related um, initiatives which are probably status quo at this point, I'd say ESG, which continues to be important. Uh, and then the, the, I know there's been a lot going on in the areas of inclusion and diversity, so I'm expecting that to be quite a full category this year, but uh, lots and lots. So I think we've got um, in the global and regional pieces, uh, there's you know 12 categories, same thing, innovation and technology. Um, so I said 36 in all, and uh, evidently hotly contested will be best wholesale sales team and best marketing team. I know uh, knives, daggers, swords are all drawn to come to the top of the pile there. And that was very competitive last year. So looking forward to, or already with a smile on my face, looking forward to see uh, how, how that battle is going to play out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for that, Carl. I think, um, I think there's a, a lot that everyone can take away from that. Great tips. Okay, very welcome. And, and maybe I could just add that the only way to get considered by the judges is to send your entries in. Uh, we had um, <laughs> revealings behind the scenes uh, with the Power 100 that we announced uh, at capacity. Uh, some people complaining that they didn't have their executives included in the Power 100. They didn't nominate them. So you've got to do, you've got to send in the nomination to get considered. It doesn't <clears> happen <throat> without that hard work by, you know, in the in advance. Judges well, can only yeah. look at what's there. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, uh, there's this wonderful ad campaign in France years ago, which said 100% uh, of the people who won the lottery actually bought a lottery ticket. So <laughs> it's, it's yeah. the same kind of thing. <laughs> Though Carl isn't running a lottery, this is much no, more. No, 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 not running a lottery. Yep. Great. Fantastic. Thanks so much, guys. Um, yes, you have to be in it to win it. That is the um, the overall message about the GCAs. And if you um, submit an original nomination full of supporting evidence and don't copy paste from your website, you also have a chance as well. Um, thank you so much, Carl. It's been wonderful to speak to you today.
Oh, well, it's look, it's always a huge pleasure. And uh, by the way, you did make a very good point. Yes, supporting evidence is, uh, is, is always good. But uh, yeah, look, it's um, looking forward to it. Uh, I know the judges are looking forward to it. So we got some additional uh, uh, clever, clever judges in there this year, and especially looking forward to these awards being handed out on the stage in London in October. That's let's keep uh, our fingers crossed. That's the plan. And uh, I'm say pretty uh, pretty optimistic that this time we will do it so fingers crossed and everything else until uh, until those dates in october indeed yes and haircuts all round as well hopefully by then um <laughs> those like me you still need to get that sorted um thank you so much carl for joining us that brings us to the end of this week's podcast thanks to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories huge thanks to carl and thanks also to everyone who listened we will be back in two weeks' time with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, you can catch up with all the latest from across the telco and data center industries over at capacitymedia.com. Also online, you will find the April-May issue of the magazine, which includes the 2021 Power 100, and nomination details for the GCAs, and of course, details for our event calendar for the rest of 2021. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week, take care, and catch you next time.